May the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our fortress. Amen. We don't know why Jesus took with him only three of the twelve disciples that day. But I think we know what it must have felt like to be one of those three. You know how it feels when someone singles you out to special, don't you? When they sort of notice you among the crowd. When they, when they make you feel special and valued and, and honored and wanted. Um, we might try to deflect some praise that comes our way in moments like that. I mean, imagine you're out on the golf course and someone says to you, um, you know, after you hammer a really long drive down the middle of a, a long par five hole and they say to you, wow, man, that was an amazing drive, you know, and they call you by name, you know, Bob or Mary or Joe, whatever your name happens to be, you know, that was amazing, you know, I wish I could... And you say, well, you know what you say. Aw, shucks, you know, even a blind squirrel finds a nut every now and then. You know, you you deflect that praise, but inwardly, oh my, that feels good, doesn't it? You want to hear that. Or maybe someone, you know, picks up a cookie that you baked at, uh, at coffee hour, and they take a bite of it, and they say, that's the most amazing cookie I've ever tasted, you know, and they're all excited, and you say, you know what you say. Aw, shucks, I just threw some flour and sugar together. I mean, it was nothing really. But inwardly, you know, there's a little leap, you know, there's a little joy, a little spark of life that comes out. There's nothing wrong with taking delight when someone takes delight in you. In fact, I think it's what we were created for. God created us to delight in us. And for others to delight in us, and for us to delight in other people. There's nothing wrong with that. And so I can imagine the day that Jesus says to Peter, James, and John, Hey, you three, we have a special mission tomorrow. We're going up to the top of the mountain to pray. I mean, I kind of can imagine that moment, you know, that they're sort of standing around saying to themselves, He picked us, you know. He chose us to go up to the top of the mountain. I mean, I can almost imagine the sort of inconspicuous look that's on their face. You know that moment where you have information you probably shouldn't share, but you really want to? You know that one I'm talking about, right? You know, ooh, I just wish I could tell somebody this. And there they are standing there looking like that, like the Cheshire cat, you know, with a big smile on their faces. But what must have been like to be the other nine? You know, there were 12 of Jesus' close followers that were with him everywhere he went. And what must it have been like to be one of the other nine? You know, I imagine that for them it was a little different. They too, just like the three that Jesus chose to go up to the top of the mountain, had given up everything. They had given up lives, careers, you know, things that they were doing. They were busy and, and they were following Jesus knowing that his, he was going to lead them somewhere. I mean, there was a destination in leaving to follow Jesus. And I don't think for a moment that any of them thought that they were going to end up like an amusement park or something, you know? It wasn't like, oh, we're going to follow him and maybe he'll lead us to a great restaurant. It wasn't like that at all, right? They were following him for a purpose. They had had given up being, you know, farmers and fishermen and carpenters and tax collectors. They had given up their lives to follow him. And I think that they thought that it was going somewhere. I think by and by, along the way, they probably thought, this might become political. I mean, 
I might get a serious office if Jesus ever gets a major following. I mean, we might become Secretary of State. You know Judas was thinking treasurer, wasn't he? I mean, there was all this sort of uh, ways in which people had, you know, maybe a little thing that I could do. Jesus invited them to come and follow him. And I think that they thought that it would go somewhere. Imagine yourself. Imagine that you had, you know, gone to college and grad school. You become a dentist. Or, or maybe you trained as a plumber and you had a, a promising career. All your Angie's List um, re- uh, reviews were perfect. You know, you had a, a great business that was going. Uh, maybe you're a hairstylist or a banker or whatever, you know. Whatever you were doing, you have this good career doing this. And Jesus comes along and he calls you to follow him. You left your life, the thing that you had been working at, to follow an itinerant preacher imagining that it was going to go somewhere, not just some sort of diversion. I remember when I was in college that there were these uh, three guys, friends of mine. I, was, I went to college down near Columbus. These guys one day decided they were going to go to Niagara Falls and be back for class the next morning. So they took off and drove, I don't know, six hours or whatever, for, to see, got out, looked at the falls, jumped back in the car and drove home. You know, this is diversion. I guess that's what you do back when gas was only like a buck and a half a gallon. You know, you could, you could afford to do something like, let's just go off and see something. This is not what these nine disciples were doing. They weren't just out on a joyride with Jesus. And so I can only imagine what they must have felt like when they weren't chosen to go up the mountain. As a parent of sons, I, I, I know what it's like to sort of you know, try to be careful that no one feels less loved than anyone else, right? Every parent knows that. You want your children to know they're all loved equally. I can only imagine how difficult it was for my mom to hide that I was her favorite from the other two. I, I know that it was tougher, but you know, there's a sense in which you don't want it. Jesus was not their parent. And I think it's wrong to sort of project back upon him the sort of uh, feelings that we would have, the you know, sort of political correctness of, of you know, everybody's self-esteem has to be equal, because that's really not what's going on here. Peter, when he's up on the mountain, he refers to Jesus as master. This, is a, this language is a language of a, um, uh, of a, a chief. It's military language. Jesus has selected these men, not simply um, because he likes them better, but I think because they were the most ready for that moment. They were the ones who were ready to go up the mountain. They were the ones who were prepared to see what... And even they aren't really ready for halos just quite yet, are they? I mean, did you hear what happens when they finally, they finally get up to the top of the mountain? They were welcome. We, I want you three to go. Wonderful. They get up to the top of the mountain and they're so bored in prayer that they're fighting off sleep. I mean, they're just, you know, they're drowsy. Oh, you know, I thought this was going to be great. Turns out to be boring. And they almost miss the transfiguration. They almost miss Jesus radiating the glory of God in such a way that would cause people to to fall down in fear. They almost miss this miracle. They almost miss seeing Moses and Elijah appear. Because they were weighed down with lethargy. But they didn't. They saw it. And as they were about to leave, Peter says, well, I think it would be the only reasonable thing you could say. I mean, what would you say if you were there? Peter says, you know what, Lord? It was good for us to be here. 
And indeed it was. And if he had stopped there, just, you know, put a little period right there, you'd been done. But he doesn't. He puts a semicolon. It was good for us to be here. In fact, he says, it is good for us to be here. Let's build three tabernacles. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. And let's just hang out up here. As ready as Peter, James, and John were, they weren't that ready. Because Peter misses the point. He gets up there and he's completely misses the point. It's good for us to be here. The premise is right. Let's build three tabernacles. The conclusion is wrong. It is good that they should be there. But Jesus didn't bring him up there to bask in a moment. He didn't bring him up there just to see, oh look, I really am God. He didn't do that. He could have done that in a million different ways. He brought him up there so that they might be prepared to do what they're about to do, which is to go down the mountain and all the way to Jerusalem. He didn't take him to the top of the mountain so that they could enshrine the moment, live in the event, but to prepare them, to equip them, give me a synonym, to help them to get ready for the future. There was a task to be done, a mission to be accomplished. That's the point behind this theophany, this visible manifestation of the power and presence of God. Because no sooner had Peter uttered these words, Luke says, while he was still speaking. So while Peter was saying, let's build three tabernacles, all of a sudden this cloud envelops them. And did you notice what happened when the cloud came? They were terrified. Listen to me. If you go through the Bible, try to find all the places where someone comes into direct contact with the presence of God. Do you know what happens in almost every single instance? They fall down on their faces, terrified, afraid. Oh my word, I'm not ready. Moses came down. He's just simply radiating the glory of God. He had seen God so so transformed him that people were terrified, not because of God, but because of Moses. It's like being afraid of the sun and not being able to look at the moon. Couldn't even handle the reflection. And Peter says, you know, let's build three tabernacles. And the voice stops him right in the middle and says, this is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. (laughs) Listen. Did you hear? This is the, the command of God. What do you want us to do? Build three tabernacles? No, I want you to listen. Discipleship is not about being a leader. There are a lot of books out there on being a great leader. And I I mean, I think that we need leaders. That's okay. But discipleship is not about being a leader. It's about being a follower. If you're a disciple of Jesus, it means that you're following Jesus. If you're following Jesus causes someone to follow you who's following Jesus, okay, well, very good then. But remember, the very first thing about discipleship is it's about being a follower. It's also about leaving a moment and pursuing the object, pursuing the goal. In Greek, the teleos, the end. It's pursuing what it is that God's called us to do. Discipleship is about listening, not about telling. Why didn't Jesus take all 12 up the mountain that day? I I think it's because not all 12 were ready. Because certainly all twelve sooner or later would be ready. They all would hear. They weren't ready then. Christ did not call these men. Listen to this. He did not call these men, these twelve men, to follow Him so that they might have promising careers as national preachers. 
He didn't call them so that they might have promising careers as national politicians. He called them to prepare them to be witnesses to Him. And do you know what their witness would cost 11 of the 12? It would cost them their lives. 11 of the 12 of Jesus' first followers died for their testimony. John, the only one who isn't executed, is boiled in oil. He is tortured and then left as a prisoner on the island of Patmos as an a, a, exile. Not like an exotic sub, you know, Caribbean island. Like, a, like a, a prison island. Following Jesus cost these men everything. And so going up that mountain that day wasn't about, congratulations, look, you just won the, you know, the reward. It's like you're American Idol or something. I don't know. This isn't going to Hollywood. This is climbing the mountain to get ready to go down the mountain into mission, into martyrdom. In the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, when Christ calls someone to follow, He calls them to come and die. Yikes. <laughs> When I went to uh, to seminary, I went to the, I told you this little um, well, it's not really little, kind of a big seminary in a little town called Wilmore, Kentucky. Um, it's a Methodist seminary, and I don't know if you know about Methodists, so they were originally Pietistic Anglicans, and so it was very much a, a home for for Anglican Pietism, even even still in Wilmore today. And this, the seminary is named after one of the first two Methodist bishops, Francis Asbury. As you drive into this sleepy little town of just a few thousand people, you'll see two things. A, you know, a pretty big seminary on one side. I mean, it's a, a, a school of, of 1,200 people, but seminaries, that's huge. On the opposite side, a, a, a university of a, you know, 2,500 students. So Lexington Avenue, seminary on the left, college on the right, both of them called Asbury. That's it. I mean, there's nothing else. There's a Chinese restaurant, a subway, and the, the statue of Francis Asbury. That's, that's all you see because... And that's all there is to see, right? And, and so in this little town, I, I, you know, I went to th- three and a half years to seminary there. And every day I would drive in, I would see the statue of Francis Asbury up on his horse. It's huge. Asbury wasn't just a bishop. He was a circuit rider. <clears throat> and I don't know if you know anything about these old Methodist circuit riders. They used to ride around the American frontier all over Ohio and Kentucky, Tennessee, Texas. Wherever there was a beginning to be an outcropping, the first people out there would be settlers building houses, and right on their heels would be Methodist circuit riders out there preaching the gospel. They would set up these little preaching places and try to draw people in from around the area, and they would preach the gospel to them. Francis Asbury was one of these men. If you became a circuit rider, the average life expectancy was 33 years of age. Most of these men were well in their 20s when they started becoming circuit riders. That meant that they knew that once they started into this mission, they would have five, maybe ten years to live. They wouldn't take wives because they they, they knew that they would leave widows. They didn't want to leave orphaned children. And so they gave up everything to do this. Every day I would ride into Wilmore and I would see this statue of Asbury sitting up on this big horse... And, and I would take this time to, you know, I noticed it. One time, you know, several times, in fact, I'd get out and I would just walk around and look at it close up, you know. Was, I would touch it. I can, I can tell you what it feels like to touch that bronze statue. After being there for all those years, I left, came back again another time. It's been, an, you know, another year there studying. I even thought about living in this little holy city of Wilmore, working for the seminary or the college. 
There's a great little town. They call it the Wilmore Bubble because it's like living in heaven. Um, there's this, uh, there's a, even a cross on top of the city's water tower. I mean, everybody, there are more Christians than dogs there. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. It's, it's, it, and I thought about living there until one of my professors, Steve Seaman, said something one day. He said, you know that statue of Asbury out there? Yeah. He said, have you ever noticed which direction it's facing? I had never noticed which direction it was facing. It was facing away from the college and seminary. It was facing up the hill towards the city of Lexington, away from the town. It, he, Asbury's on his horse, and if it were to come alive, he would take off and ride out of town, not into it. And Steve Seaman said, the reason that the horse is facing out and not in is because this is a place to come and prepare to go out, not to stay. This is where you'll be sent from. It's not a destination. I'd seen it many times, and I missed the forest for the trees. The Mount of Transfiguration is not a destination. It's the the point of departure. In fact, when when Jesus leaves us, Luke says he was preparing to make his exodus. There's an echo from the Old Testament, isn't it? This is a place from which he's going to leave. And Peter, James, and John, and the other twelve are going to have to decide if they're going to get on the road to Jerusalem with Jesus. And to us, this call today is not about geography. As much as it is about a decision whether or not we are going to accept for ourselves this call. Are we going to follow Jesus? Are we going to follow Him all the way to the cross? As we get ready to walk into this Lenten season, beginning on Wednesday, are we really ready to walk with Jesus all the way to the cross? You see, this message is for everybody, but not everybody is ready to receive it. The question for us this morning is whether we're ready to receive it. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.